Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. This weekend's message is from Tyler McKenzie. He's the lead pastor here at Northeast. Now, uh, today I'm going to continue with a series we launched last week, part two, on, uh, on an extremely important book in the New Testament uh, called Acts. For those of you who are new to the Bible, just to reorient you, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the first four books of the Christian New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell us the story of Jesus. There are four authoritative accounts. It begins with Jesus' birth, and it runs all the way to his death, his resurrection, and his ascension into heaven. Incredible story. But only strange thing about it is that that's where it ends. Like this there's this amazing moment of power where Jesus rises and he commissions his disciples and it looks like something's about to happen, something big's coming and then just like the story stops. And you're left as a reader asking the question, what's next? And that's what makes Acts so beautiful. Acts picks up where the gospels leave off and it shows us the ascension of Jesus, it shows us the commission of Jesus to his disciples, and then the birth of the church, led by the people who knew Jesus the best and empowered by the Spirit in a unique way that may have never been replicated in the history of the church. It's an incredible book. So that's what we're studying. We're studying the birth of us, the birth of the church. Now, I think that this book is especially relevant in this cultural moment right now. And the reason why is because the church has come under a tremendous amount of criticism over the last year or two for lots of reasons beyond the scope of what we have time to talk about. And I think rightfully so. The American church has a lot of problems. And if you're around here long, you know that I'm not, you know, I'm not shy in calling those out. In fact, sometimes I can be the loudest voice box for that. Now, for those of you wondering, I want you to know that one, I do that out of a great love for the church. I love the church. I gave my life to leading the church. Two, I also do that out of a clear understanding that I am a huge part of what's broken in the church. Yes, uh, me. See, just like you, I'm a sinner deeply in need of God's grace every single day. And if the church is gonna look like Jesus, if it's gonna be the body of Jesus corporately that we're called to be, then everyone individually has to acknowledge their sin and do everything they can to conform their life to Christ. But three, I call the church out with my reference point, and you need to know this, with my reference point constantly being our Jesus and this book, Acts. Because in Acts, we see the church at its golden era, if you will. It's not the perfect church, but it's the church at the golden era moment. And if we wanna return to that golden era, then we need to know that book and try to restore what we see there. So that's the hope of this series. That's the hope of this series. Now, uh, if, you, if you guys were here last week, you may remember this diagram. This diagram summarizes really well how, how we're trying to approach this. We're looking at the ancient church and how the ancient church maps onto modern issues with the American church. If you were here last week, we looked at Acts chapter 1 
in the introduction there. Luke chapter one and how Luke kind of bonds with action. It's like one story, two volumes. If you were here last week, you remember it. And we use those introductions to Acts to ask the question and answer, can I trust the Christian scriptures? Because a lot of people don't. Today, there's a lot of deconstruction of the Christian scriptures. And so hopefully what you saw last week, if you didn't go back and watch it, is that Acts 1 and Luke 1 are great examples of how trustworthy scripture can in fact be. Now today, we're going to wade into even more controversial waters. And we're gonna look at Jesus's great commission of Acts from Acts 1, 6 through 11 to answer this question. Is diversity Christian? And what I think you'll see after studying the word of God is that the answer of Acts is a resounding, undeniable yes. But before I start preaching, let's read God's word together. If you would stand with me, if you're able, please stand just out of respect for the word of God. And if you can't stand, that's okay. Just put your heart and your mind in a position of surrender. Even if you're at home and you're able to stand, you please stand. And let's read Acts 1, 6 through 11 together. Um, it says, so when the apostles were with Jesus, and this is the risen Jesus for the record. So when they were with the risen Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? He replied, the father alone has the authority to set those date and times and they are not uh, for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere. In Jerusalem, through Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After saying this, Jesus was taken up in a cloud while they were watching. And they could no longer see him. And as they strained to see him rising into heaven, two white-robed men, similarly angels, suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said. Why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven. Someday, he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Thanks be to God for all of his word. Now, to, to put it simply, y'all, this is the great commission of Acts. These are Jesus's last words recorded. And in these words, Jesus tells the disciples, y'all got a job to do. In fact, it's funny. He's like, y'all got a job to do, get to work. And then how do the disciples respond? They're like, it's like they're just standing there. Wow, that was... And like angels show up. They're so like, oh, that angels show up. They don't even know that, notice the angels in front of them. Like the angels are like, Galilee, men of Galilee. They're like, oh, hi. And they're not even surprised by the angels because Jesus just like disappeared into another dimension. They're like, oh, hi. And the angel's like, you got a job to do. He's coming back. He let, he's coming back though. So get to work. And then finally they get to work. Now, I want to read to you again, specifically the job description though, because Jesus is very, very clear here about what our commission is. Okay, and in fact, you know, I want to welcome you to read this out loud with me because it's very simple, it's very precise, gets at the heart of who we're calling to be, uh, called to be. Will you read this with me? Acts 1.8. This is the commission. This is the job. Jesus says, read it. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, in this commission here, we see the how and the who of our job. The how and the who of our job. The how is the Holy Spirit will empower you to bear witness. You're going to bear witness by the power of the Spirit. But the who 
is even more specific. In fact, I want to put a map up on the screen right now. And this map will help you see that Jesus identifies specific geographic regions, specific ethnic groups, or specific demographic categories that he wants the church to go after. First, he says, go to Jerusalem. You'll see that on the bottom of the map. Jerusalem was the capital city for the Jews, and it's where the Jew, uh, Jewish temple was. Then he says, take, uh, take me, bear witness to me where? After that, where? In Judea, as you can see from the map, Judea is the surrounding land around Jerusalem, and it was inhabited mostly by Jewish people. Then he says, take, uh, take, take Jesus, bear witness to, womp, 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 where? Samaria. Those dirty, rotten Samaritans. And how did the Jews feel about the Samaritans? Not good. And how did the Samaritans feel about the Jews? Not good. If there's anything that maps onto the racial animus and unrest we are experiencing today, it is the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans because there were lots of deep wounds of prejudice between the two. Then after Samaria, Jesus says, I also want you to bear witness to me or uh, for me where? To the ends of the earth. Or in other words, he's like, go beyond that. Go up around the Mediterranean rim, west into Europe, east into Asia, south into Africa, where I want you to take, I want you to take the risen Jesus everywhere. And so they do. Or to summarize it for you, Jesus says, I want you to bear witness in your neighborhood. That's Jerusalem. I want you to bear witness with those who are culturally similar to you. That's Judea. I want you to bear witness before your enemies. That's Samaria. And I also want you to bear witness to, the, uh, to those who are culturally, politically, and ethnically different than you. To the pagans, to the Gentiles. That's the end of the earth. Now, uh, this commission was both easy and hard for the disciples. Radical and apparently not all that radical for them. You see, uh, it was actually really, really easy for them to bear witness. They didn't have any problem preaching about the risen Jesus, read Acts. It also was apparently really, really easy for them to preach in Jerusalem and Judea, where people were like them, no problem there. And what's so perplexing to me is that the leaders of Jerusalem, the, the Jewish leadership wanted to kill them. Tried to, did kill some of the apostles. And yet they, they preach anyways, right? Fearlessly. But what was hard for them was to go beyond Jerusalem and Judea and take it to Samaria. And what was even more difficult, we see this throughout Acts, was taking it to the Gentiles. Gentile inclusion. And yet that was the mission that they were given. Now, uh, that having been said and established, I, I want to speak uh, personally uh, to you from my own experience here at Northeast. Uh, for the five, uh, five years now, for the five years I've been uh, the lead pastor at Northeast, uh, this has always been a core value for us, multi-ethnic diversity and, and love. And that's more than just the people that gathers in the room. The people that gathers in the room, that's a small part of it. That's the relationships and the partnerships and the causes and the love and the presence that a church has outside the church. This has always been a value for us. Okay, we, since, the, since the beginning of this, we have, uh, we have learned from those who are different than us. We have given and served those who are different than us. We have worshiped and prayed with those who are different than us, fought when necessary for those who are different than us and bore witness to Jesus among those who are different than us. 
And what I've loved about this church is for like the last four or five years, there's always been the spirit of encouragement and applause and excitement about it. Until, like I don't know, like a, a year or two ago, like about 18 to 24 months ago. Now this isn't indicative of the majority of our church, but about a year or two ago, a small yet vocal minority of our church began to get really, really touchy about the topic of race and ethnic diversity. Something changed, if you will. And I'll tell you what didn't change. We didn't change. And the scripture's position on the matter didn't change either. It's, it's been the same for 2,000 years now. But something changed with this group. And I've heard this common thread among many church leaders. Can I, can I be last, last 5% honest with you? Uh, there is no topic that brings out more vile, violent, ferocious, downright demonic emails, comments, messages, and conversations from so-called Christians than when we talk about the issue of race at this church. Again, it's, it's not the majority, but, but there's an outspoken minority and it gets nasty fast. We had to talk about a lot of stuff over the last 18 months, man. We've been talking about COVID and masks and vaccines and you know politics. We did a series on political theology during the election, okay? That got some conversations and feedback, I promise you that. But none of them hold a candle, even hold a candle to the ferocity and anger and downright hate of the feedback we get when we talk about race. Now, oftentimes when you know, the emails get sideways like this, folks on the other end sort of sum it up with a self-righteous veneer and their, their final pushback sounds something like this. Have you ever heard this before? They'll say, pastor, this is what I want. Would you just stop talking about race? Just stop talking about race and just preach the gospel. And I want you to know that if you have ever felt that sentiment before, then that ain't possible. It's not possible to do that because Jesus does not separate multi-ethnic diversity from the gospel. Did you read Acts 1-8? One of the essential goals of our witness is to bring diverse people together. So that's what we must do. Now, um, this is gonna be so frustrating to me, guys. Like, Show me grace if I get passionate over the next few minutes because I, I mean this in, in a spirit of, of, of love. Just, I, I want to I see our church become what God has for our church. But it frustrates me because there's this beautiful, biblical vision of a multi-ethnic, diverse family in Scripture. And it's ours. It's, it's, it's our vision. And it's so relevant right now. So relevant. It could bring so much healing to the world. It's what the world's hungering for. And yet I feel like this vision has been taken from us by the left and the right. The left wants to thread this story that somehow Christianity is against diversity. It wants to paint Christianity based on its worst abusers. And then on the flip side, the right 
wants to just sit there and like blow dog whistles the whole time. Even the most sincere and genuine attempts to move towards justice or diversity, the, the right, okay, and, and I'm talking about like the voice boxes of the right, like the newscasters and the politicians, they, they just want to immediately say, you better see underneath that there's something far more sinister going on. They don't really want diversity. No, that pastor doesn't really just want to hold like, I don't know, a prayer vigil for racial peace in our country. No, it's, it's not that harmless. It's evil. He's, he's one of them like millennial, woke, white replacement, anti-plea, social justice warrior types and a socialist. Because you got to throw socialism in there, right? Do we know what socialism is? Most of us don't, but is it bad? Yes, right? And so that's, and that's where it goes. Now, now look, I, I, I say this, I'm going to talk about the left and the right, folks on the right. I, I, I say this knowing that that's not most of you who are right-leaning. Again, that's a caricature and that's the voice boxes of the right. But you need to know that if you inhabit right-leaning spaces, those are the voice boxes. Like that, that's, that's the ecosystem that you're living in, the air that you're breathing, and so it's going to influence you. Can I just challenge you? Okay, so um, I marked this off earlier this morning. Uh, I want to show you something right here. This, my smartphone-wielding generation, Z friends, is called a paper Bible. <laughs> it's big. It's, real, it's big. This is my biggest Bible that I got. It's my seminary Bible, Okay. And what I've got pinched right here in between my fingers is the book of Acts. Look at how many pages in the Bible. Look how little Acts is. It's only 28 chapters. And a Bible chapter will take you two minutes or less to read. Now I gotta ask you, have you ever read Acts in full before? Because if you've never read this little bee sliver right here of, of scripture, then you got some homework to do this week. You're telling me that you're a part of the church. That you're going to give money and time and energy and, and tell people that you call yourself a Christian and you've never taken the time to read the one authoritative account of the birth of the church? You got, you got, you got some homework this week. Now, I want to add something to it. All right. My thumb has got the beginning of Matthew here. And, and, and this is, I got the, the end of Acts right here. Okay. So right now in between my fingers, I've got the four gospels and Acts. The four authoritative accounts of Jesus' story and the one authoritative account of the church. And I gotta ask you, have you read this before? In full? Because if you haven't, you got some homework to do. You're telling me that you, you're gonna say you've given your life to Jesus. You're gonna call him your Lord, your Savior and King, and you haven't read the four relatively short in the grand scheme of the Bible, authoritative accounts of his life. You, you got to read them. And if you do read them this week, here's what I promise you, you will find. You will find it is impossible to strip ethnicity out of the gospel. It's just impossible. I mean, what do you want me to do? You want me to teach you that, that the, pro, the great Abrahamic promise wasn't a blessing to all the nations? You want me to, to, to just ignore the fact that Jesus was discriminated against because he was from Nazareth? You want me to not say that the woman at the well was a Samaritan or that the centurion was a Roman or that Jesus ministered to the Syrophoenician woman or about his outreach attempts in the Decapolis? You not want me to say that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah or Paul was the apostle to the 
Gentiles. Do you not want me to point out that Matthew, Luke, and Acts' great commissions all have an ethnic component to, you, to it? And do you not want me to preach about the revelation vision of every tribe, nation, and tongue coming together one day to worship at the throne of Jesus Christ? You want me to leave all that out and some more? See, this is my point here. Okay. If you strip out all the, the ethnic references in scripture, what do you have left? The answer is just about nothing, <laughs> not much. Now, one of my friends pushed back on me uh, last summer. I thought this was a good piece of constructive feedback. They're like, okay, Tyler, I get it. But, but as Christians, we're just supposed to be about the love commands. Jesus said, there's two great commandments, love God, love others, keep it simple. So stop talking about race and just preach the love commands. Okay. I, that's, that's fair. That's, that's a fair critique. Here's the only problem with that though. If you read how Jesus himself applies the love commands, then what you'll see is he actually applies it directly to loving across lines of discrimination. Luke chapter 10. Okay. In Luke's version of the love commands, I want you to, to watch what happens here. It says, one day an expert in religious law, this is a, a Jewish scribe, stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? And the man answered, here, here they are. One, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, uh, strength, and mind. And two, love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him. Do this and you will live. I love this translation. Put exclamation points. Jesus is excited about the love commands. Right. And then the man wanted to justify his actions though. So he asked Jesus, okay, well, who's my neighbor? You said love thy neighbor. Who's my neighbor, Jesus? And Jesus replied with a story. Now, Bible scholars in the room, what story does Jesus tell next? The story of the good Samaritan. What, Jesus, there ain't no such thing as a good Samaritan. It's Jesus' story, okay? So apparently, at the very least, at the very least, to Jesus, what love thy neighbor means is loving across deep wounds of prejudice and discrimination, at the very least. Because when he teaches the love commandment, that's how he applies it. Okay, so look, um, here's what I'm asking to, to, to my right-leaning friends. So what I'm gonna ask you to do, okay? When, when your brothers and sisters in Christ or when your pastor uh, talks, talks about race or diversity or, or whatever it may be, just, I'm asking you, just don't be so quick to hear the dog whistles. Don't be so quick to judge. Don't be so quick to say, oh, you're getting political because I promise you, I ain't even political. I'm just being biblical. No, oh, I don't know about that. Sounds like you're going liberal on me. You're going left. You can't do that. You can't, you can't say black lives matter. Have you read this book? So I'm going to tell you, if you read this book, you'll go 10 steps further. And you'll say black lives are sacred in the eyes of God, just like every image bearer in this room. So now that I've frustrated half the room, <laughs> I also want to point out that I get frustrated with the left too. <laughs> I do. Because they want to pretend like Christianity is against this. It's against this beautiful multi-ethnic vision of the kingdom. Apparently Christianity's most hostile enemies have forgotten that it was the Christians who were the first religion 
and first philosophy of life to actually do effective outreach across lines of ethnicity and across socioeconomic barriers. And you want to know why? Because we have the doctrine of the image of God that sees dignity and value in every human being and also the great commission of Jesus that tells us to go to the nations, to the ends of the earth. This is why I would suggest to you that human rights and human dignity are so popular in the modern West today. Most historians will tell you that you can take a straight, this is like the unforgivable sin in our culture, right? Everybody's all about human rights, but equality, good, right? Most historians will tell you, you can take a straight line back from that belief historically to the early Christians. See, when Jesus came about, listen, human rights and dignity was not a universally acknowledged moral norm. Today on the planet earth, it is not a universally acknowledged moral norm. It was the Christians though, it's the Christians though, who first said that, that the, the, the stranger, the foreigner, ought to have our hospitality, the poor, actually has rights to our God-given possessions and that the sick must be cared for. And what frustrates me about the left is they wanna act like we're against it when really they've just smuggled our beliefs into their belief system and then stripped it of the glory of God. He's the one who deserves the glory for it. I'm reminded here of the, of the witness of Dr. Martin Luther King, pastor, for me personally, modern day saint. If you know me, you know I wake up most mornings and read one of his sermons or speeches because he's got so much to say right now. So King was faced with, with ultimate injustice and, and he was faced with it within the church. But you know what King didn't do? King didn't say, uh, well, you know what? To hell with the Christians. Peace, I'm deconstructing my faith. I'm, I'm out. That's not what King said. Instead, King looked the moderate Christians, the apathetic brothers and sisters of Christ right square in the eyes, and he called them to be more queer Christian by quoting scripture, let justice roll like water, by citing doctrine, every human being from the base black to the treble white is significant on God's keyboard because we're all created in the image of God and by reminding us of our call to enemy love. It was King's belief in his nonviolent civil disobedience that our goal should be to convert enemy into friend. That's the ultimate goal. So look, again, let me bring this full circle, okay? What's your point, Tyler? Here's my point. This beautiful vision of a multi-ethnic, diverse kingdom of difference coming together in Christ, it's ours. It's the Christians. It's not the lefts. It's not the rights. And there are few things more relevant than that today. So church, time for us to rise up and claim it. Because it's ours. It's ours. Amen. Now... Now that I've thoroughly annoyed everyone, let's go back to scripture. And I wanna walk you really briefly through the story of the early church in Acts. Because what you're going to see in this out brief outline of Acts is that you can't strip ethnicity out of the story of the early church. First, in Acts chapter one, we have the commission to multi-ethnic witness. Jesus tells his disciples to go where? Everywhere, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And what's interesting is, is that's actually the outline for the rest of Acts. Did you know that? Acts 1 through 7 is the mission to Jerusalem. Acts 8 through 12 is the mission to Judea and Samaria. Acts 13 through 28 is the mission to the ends of the earth. Check me on it. Um, then you have Acts 2, the multi-ethnic birth 
of the church at Pentecost. Did you know, and I believe this is correct, check me if I'm wrong, but did you know in Acts 2 when the church is born, the Holy Spirit gifts the disciples with a unique spiritual gift that I don't think happens any other time in the rest of scripture. Somebody, honestly, somebody check me on this because I was shooting from the hip at the 9 a.m., but I can't remember another time in scripture where they get this gift. Do, do you know what the gift is? They're given the gift of being able to speak foreign languages. It's not just speaking in tongues. It's the gift of speak foreign languages fluently that they did not know. Hmm. Now, why would God do that at the birth of the church? Because he's trying to create something here. Well, first, because in Acts 2, it's Pentecost. And so pilgrims are coming from across the world into Jerusalem. And second, he wants the world to receive the testimony of Jesus. Uh, go to the next slide, of, uh, the second slide of Acts 2 there. If you just scan this slide real quick, there's like 10 to 15 different peoples there. And the disciples are able to communicate Jesus to them all in their home dialect. Uh, next, if you fast forward from Acts 2 to Acts 6, you see the need for diverse leadership. Apparently, uh, the uh, Greek-speaking widows were getting treated uh, differently than the Hebrew-speaking widows, and so the apostles are smart. They elect diverse leadership to solve the problem. Acts chapter 8, uh, God sends Christianity to Samaria and Africa when Philip is literally sent out to some random desert road to run into the treasurer from Ethiopia and convert him to Christianity so he can take Christianity back. Now, real quick sidebar here to any of my uh, brothers and sisters in Christ who are African-American in your descent, I want to remind you that long before the United States of America or North America even was a twinkle in the kingdom of God's eye, Africa was shaping the mind of the Christian church. Did you know this? After the uh, early disciples are martyred and died, the church explodes in North Africa. In fact, uh, communities um, of Christianity, like uh, the ones in the lands of Ethiopia or Nubia, are some of the oldest ones in the history of the church. Let us not forget Augustine of Hippo, perhaps the greatest theologian of all time, certainly maybe the most influential one, was an African. Let's also not forget Athanasius of Alexandria, a contemporary of, uh, of Augustine, whose nickname was, anybody? The Black Dwarf. Now, do you know why he was named the Black Dwarf? I'm not actually sure, but probably because he's short and black. <laughs> and also because he was brilliant. This guy, you need to know he was brilliant. Because if it wasn't for Athanasius' brilliant mind, then the doctrine of the Trinity may not have fended off the heresy of Arianism in the fourth century. He led that. I could go on, but we gotta move on. Acts, uh, Acts 9. In Acts chapter 9, moving on in our outline, Paul is saved. This holy war Jewish terrorist who's going around and throwing Jewish Christians into prison or killing them for Gentile inclusion is saved. And you know what he is saved to? To be the apostle to the Gentiles. Acts chapter 10, Peter is commanded in a vision to diversify. Apparently Peter just hadn't gotten the picture yet, so God shows up in a dream to him. Jesus himself says, quit calling dirty what I've made clean, Peter. Then a couple of randoms show up at his door. They're like, come with us. We want to introduce you to a Roman soldier. And he's like, what? Okay. You know, like that, doesn't, that sounds suspicious. But he goes, meets Cornelius. And when he meets Cornelius, this is what it says. It says, Peter began to speak to, to him. I truly understand now that God shows no partiality. In every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. You know the message he sent to the people of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ. He's the Lord of all. While Peter was speaking, says the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. 
Now, Peter's excited about this. He's like, those outside of Judaism are in. This is, this is great. So he goes back to Jerusalem, super pumped to tell all of his buddies about this. But guess what he finds in Acts 11? Not so happy friends. It says, soon the news reached to the apostles and other believers in Judea that the Gentiles had received the word of God, the Gentiles. So when Peter got back, the Jewish believers celebrated with him. Oh, no, they criticized him. You entered the home of Gentiles and you even ate with them. In Acts 11 and 13, we see the apostle Paul sent on the first of his three church planting trips in which he plants multi-ethnic churches in Gentile lands. Acts chapter 15, we see the first church council over ethnic inclusion. Why? Apparently Paul was really good at planting multi-ethnic churches and people didn't like it. Uh, moving on in Acts 15, we see Paul and Barnabas split over what I'd believe to be John Mark's prejudice, but that's a case to be made in a Bible study. Acts 16, we see Paul, uh, Paul go on his second uh, of three church planning trips. Um, Acts 16, we also see the circumcision controversy of Timothy, which wouldn't you like to be remembered in church history for that? He's the one of the circumcision controversy. Okay, Acts 16, we also see Paul's vision to take Jesus to Macedonia, and then we see him plant the church in Philippi, where guess who's converted? A pagan woman, guess who's set free? A slave girl, and guess who witnesses a miracle? The Philippian jailer. Acts 17, we see Paul preach to the great philosophers of Athens. Acts 19, Paul goes on his final church planning trip. Acts 21, Paul is arrested over, guess what? Gentile inclusion. Just read that last line there. It says, he, he speaks, this was the charges brought against Paul and his last moments as a free man in his life. He speaks against the temple and defiles this holy place by bringing in the Gentiles. Acts 23, Paul receives a vision that he will take Jesus to Rome and he's pumped about that. Acts 25, Paul desires to take Jesus to Caesar. Acts 27 and 28, uh, the book comes to an abrupt end but it ends with Paul witnessing after a shipwreck to, uh, to pagans in Malta. And then of course there's Acts 29. See that hand in the back, go ahead. Tyler, there's only 28 chapters in Acts. Quit lying to us. Well, okay, if you know preachers, then you know that all of us have to do our Acts 29 sermon. You've probably heard one before. Acts 28 is where their story ends and 29 is where our story begins, church. See what you did right there? And, and you know what our story looks like after Acts? It looks like the multi-ethnic expansion catching fire and it hasn't stopped since. And thank God for some brown-skinned brothers and sisters putting some miles in their sandals and bringing the gospel west so that one day it could reach the United States of America and convert all you pagan Gentiles here. Allow me to remind you, you are not Israel. You are not the Jew. You're the Gentile. Thank God for his grace and desire to lovingly bring all of us into the family. So, uh, so one more time, pastor, stop talking about race. Just preach the gospel. Man, I love you, but I ain't possible. I can't, because Jesus does not separate multi-ethnic diversity from the gospel. One of the essential goals of our witness is to bring diverse people together. And I want to remind you that it is only by the power of the gospel that we have that. Only. Know what the gospel gives us? The power of the gospel takes over your heart. It gives you a vision of God through all the images of God in every other culture. Larry Kreider, founder of Dove International, said this once. I thought it was so good. He said, God has often used various cultures to speak to me of his love, compassion, and grace. 
I learned years ago from watching people sweeping the streets at 5.30 a.m. in Seoul, Korea, how our God values work. Hard work's always been a part of Korean culture for generations. I've learned from many of my Latin American friends the importance of relationships and family. From my African friends, they've taught me unselfish love and generosity when they invite me in their homes for a meal. My friends in India have modeled for me a deep respect and honor for their parents and family. God uses each culture to speak to us, he says, about himself and his attributes. Different cultures teach us how much we need one another and can learn from each other. The power of the gospel, y'all. And here's what else the story of the gospel reminds us of. It reminds us of how far Jesus was willing to go in his dying pursuit to love an enemy. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who knew a little bit about enemies, wrote this, said, Jesus Christ lived in the midst of them, midst of enemies. At the end, all his disciples deserted him. On the cross, he was utterly alone, surrounded by evildoers and mockers. For this cause he had come, to bring peace to the enemies of God. So the Christian, too, belongs not in the seclusion of a cloistered life, but in the thick of foes. There is his commission, Bonhoeffer writes. Then quoting Martin Luther, he says, the kingdom is to be in the midst of your enemies. And he who will not suffer this does not want to be of the kingdom of Christ. He wants to be among friends, to sit among roses and lilies, but not with the bad people, the devout people. Oh, you blasphemous betrayers of Christ. Classic Luther there. If Christ, don't miss this line. Look up here. Don't miss this. If Christ had done what you're doing, who would have ever been spared? Ain't it the truth? So here's my loving challenge to you, church. We got to get up out Jerusalem. Jesus says, go to Jerusalem, sure, but then go beyond it. It's easy to stay in Jerusalem. I get it. But we got to get out Jerusalem. We got to get out of our cultural safe zones. It was hard for the disciples, okay? So don't be too hard on yourself. Acts 1, they get the commission. Acts 2, where do they go? Jerusalem. 3, where do they go? Jerusalem. 4, where do they go? Jerusalem. 5, Jerusalem. 6, Jerusalem. 7, Jerusalem. And then finally in Acts chapter 8, let me read to you. It says a great uh, wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem, because that's the only place it really was at that point. And all the believers, except the apostles, were scattered finally through Judea and Samaria. Now, what did it take to get them up out Jerusalem? Persecution. And who didn't go? The apostles, to which uh, Jesus has got to be face palming at this point. Like, it cost Stephen his life and y'all, all All right, let's get Paul. Paul, you know, we're bringing in Paul. And then Paul meets the rest of the disciples. He's like, listen, here's the map. You guys take Jerusalem, draws a little circle around it. I'll take the rest, right? And he just goes. So let us consider this moment our Paul moment. Paul, you are the apostle to the Gentiles. Go, get up out Jerusalem, man. Get up out Jerusalem and go. In fact, receive this beautiful vision of the kingdom today, church. Just receive this. Know what the kingdom of God is? Heaven, heaven itself is a global village. Because even this day, God is building, bonded by the Spirit through the power of Jesus Christ, 
this fellowship called the church from every tribe, nation, and tongue. He's looked at the Koreans and he has said, you are my beloved. He's looked at the Ugandans and he has said, you are my chosen. He's looked at the Mexicans and he's called them brothers and sisters. At the Bolivians and he's called them holy priests. At the Cherokee and the Navajo and he said, even you, yes, yes, you, you, my friend, could be sealed by the spirit. And he's looked at every single ambassador of Christ in the state of Kentucky and he said, you got a job to do. That means my black brothers and sisters are the salt of the earth. My brown brothers and sisters are the light of the world. And together, locked arms, we are the eternal fellowship of the saints. I'll tell you what, if we can spend eternity in heaven together, I promise you this, we can share a meal together. We can share a church together. We can share a city together. And we can share the most important mission we've ever been given together but it's only by the power of the gospel that we do that only and we must remember that 